we are going to be spending some time this year in Psalm 119. And um, we're not going to quite get into our study of Psalm 119 this morning. We're going to do something else a little bit different. But I'd like you to go ahead and turn this morning to Psalm 119. I know that's not what's on the screen, but go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. I want you to see this before we jump into what we're doing this morning. So Psalm's right in the middle of your Bible, and we're looking for Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. There's 176 verses in the Psalm. And this year we're going to spend a lot of time in this psalm. If you know anything about the way this psalm is constructed, it has 22 sections to it. And the reason it has 22 sections is there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each of these sections begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can imagine if it was in English, if somebody wrote a poem that had 22 sections, excuse me, 26 sections to it, because we have 26 letters in the English alphabet, and the first section began with A, and the second section began with B, and the last section began with Z, that would be set up the same way. That's how Psalm 119 is constructed in those 22 sections. And each section has eight verses in it. Okay, so it's a very orderly psalm in that way. And we're going to just kind of be working our way through that psalm through this year. But the psalm is all about the word of God. It's about the law of God. And specifically, it's about the, the psalmist's relationship to God's word. Take a look at just the first several verses so that you can see what I mean here. Verse 1, the psalmist wants to walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, he wants to keep his testimonies. Verse 3, he wants to walk in his ways. Verse 4, he wants to keep his precepts. Verse 5, to keep his statutes. Verse 6, his eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 7, to learn God's righteous rules. Verse 8, to keep his statutes. And the whole psalm continues like that. Each verse is another truth about God's word and our relationship to it. So when we talk about God's law, the question comes up, do we still have to obey God's law today? I mean, we're in the new covenant, right? So we're under grace, not under law, right? We don't have to keep the law anymore. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Well, the simple answer is no, that's not right. It's true that we have received grace, but as we will see, God's law, rightly understood, is unchanging. It's valid still today. And as we go through the series, hopefully that will become clear. And I think this sermon series will be very challenging to us and hopefully very helpful. I doubt that any of us would say right off the bat, I have a perfect relationship with God's law. I obey God's word at every point. I read God's word just as much as I ought to. I know God's word like the back of my hand. God's word is in my heart. God's word shapes all of my thoughts and my actions. I'm guessing none of us would venture to say anything close to that. 
In other words, we've all got some work to do. We're all lacking in this department to some extent. So my prayer is that God's Spirit will use this series to challenge us, but also to encourage us, and particularly to develop in us what we just sang together, a love for God's law, so that we can say what the psalmist said about it. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Today, though, in this message, I want to begin by asking the question, how did Jesus think about the law? Before we get to Psalm 119, what did Jesus have to teach us about God's law? And that, I think, will set the tone for this series. So turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's the first gospel, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> now, just to kind of give you a heads up as to what's coming over the next couple of weeks. Next week, we will not be continuing in this series, though in some ways it's a little bit related. We will have a special message next week for Biblical Sexuality Sunday. Okay, that's something that was started last year, and it was actually started by a group in Canada because they're facing some very significant pressures, the kind that we're seeing here, but even more so. And so a group of kind of like-minded churches that we would fit right in with um, has started that as saying, let's just, let's take a day where we can emphasize what the Bible's teaching about sexuality is. And so we're going to do that next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, I will be out of town but three of the elders are going to kind of tag team an introduction to Psalm 119 for us. And so it, one of the things that was important for me as we started this series is that at some point we hear Psalm 119 in its entirety in one sitting. And so three of the guys are going to do that for us. They're going to read a third of it and then take like five minutes to talk about one particular verse and give us a little insight on that verse read the next section, and that way we will hear the whole thing all in one setting. The, the psalm, if you just sit and read it out loud, takes about 20 minutes to read because it's so long. But I think it's important for us to kind of get the whole thing, get the sense of it and the weight of it all together at once. And then the Sunday after that, Dave's going to have a message for us from Jeremiah. And then in February, on that first Sunday, we will dig into Psalm 119 itself kind of systematically and start working through it. So that's what's on the near horizon for us. But for this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 5. And this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So it's a very famous passage. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount stretches from Matthew 5 to chapter 7. So it stretches over those three chapters. And it's a famous sermon that he gave on a mountainside in Galilee. And um, our text is kind of in there towards the beginning of that. It's Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 26 eventually. And I'm going to um, begin by reading just verses 17 through 20. So if you have your Bible there, follow along as I read Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first of all, just by way of explanation, when he refers to an iota or a dot, those are like the tiniest punctuation marks or the tiniest letters, the tiniest parts of uh, Hebrew writing. And so it's kind of just saying, there's not any part of the, the law that's going to pass away. That's, the, well, that's what he's emphasizing there. Now, when Jesus says that he has come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, what does he mean? There's a lot of misconceptions out there of what Jesus is saying here. Some think Jesus meant that now that he's here, the law and the prophets are no longer in force. He's fulfilled them. In other words, he's done away with them. He's put an end to them. But of course, in the same verse, Jesus just said that he didn't come to abolish or abrogate the law. That's not what he's doing. Others think Jesus was saying that he replaces the law and the prophets. So now there's the law of the Spirit instead of the written law given at Sinai. But first of all, the word never means that in the New Testament or in early church writings. And Jesus says in verse 18 that the law will not pass away. It doesn't get replaced. Others say that what Jesus means is that he himself will obey the law and that in doing so, we no longer have to. Now, it is true that Jesus will obey the law. But that doesn't explain why Jesus would be saying that he's not abolishing the law or why he would point out that the law will continue as long as the heavens and the earth remain. So what does Jesus mean? Well, in this sermon, Jesus' central concern is righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus' followers must have if they are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in phrasing that should be familiar for our church, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Verses 17 through 20 are central to Jesus' teaching of what that righteousness is. This sermon that he gives is patterned after the giving of the law at Sinai. So Jesus is on a mountain like Moses was when he gave him the law. The form is similar. There's general principles given or general laws and then a number of particular case laws, examples that illustrate the general laws. And the main thing that should stand out to us is that Jesus is emphasizing that the Old Testament law continues in detail. He's going to correct some misuses of the law, but he's not changing the law. Instead, he's clarifying and confirming the law. Now, we should remember, this is consistent with what the Old Testament prophets promised would happen. For example, think about what Jeremiah said about the new covenant. This is a fairly familiar verse. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Now that's describing the new covenant. But God doesn't say, I'll make a new law and give it to them. The law itself is unchanged. What changes is that the law will be written within them. 
written on their hearts. And that will happen because God's spirit will reside in them. It's the same law, but now it's written on the heart. It'll probably help us to look at these two key words in, in this one verse, verse 17, abolish and fulfill. Okay, so let's, let's drill down a little bit to understand these words better. First, briefly, the word abolish. Another good way to translate that word would be abrogate or invalidate, to set something aside as no longer valid. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do that. Now, notice the logical structure of what Jesus says. Okay. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the form is not abolish, but fulfill. Not this, but that. So that means, you know, the word but is a, is a word of strong contrast here. If we want to understand the meaning of the word fulfill, we have to ask, well, what would be in contrast to abolish? So let's think through some of those things that have been raised. How about obey? Is obeying the law in contrast to abolishing it? It's not quite what Jesus is saying. That kind of logic would be like saying something like, he's not playing quarterback, he's drinking milk. They're just not logically opposite to each other. They're two different kinds of things. What about replacing the law? Well, that also doesn't fit as a contrast. Replacing it would mean that it's no longer in force. In other words, it would mean abolishing it. And Jesus says that's not what he's doing. No, the word fulfill means to fill up to its full measure. Okay, to fill up to its full, literally the two parts of the word, full, fill, both of those parts come from the same root word, and they both mean to fill something up to its full measure. Not to overfill it, not to underfill it, to fill it full. That's what the word means, okay? If I have a glass and a pitcher of water, and I say I'm going to fill the glass full, that means I will pour water into it until the water is at the very top of the glass, no more could fit in, and none spilled out. It's filled full. That's what fulfill means. So if the glass is the Old Testament law, and Jesus is giving us a teaching on righteousness, then his description of righteousness conforms exactly and fully to the shape of the Old Testament law. In other words, Jesus is reinforcing the law. He's confirming it. He's establishing it. That's what he's doing. Okay? So we could say not abolish, but confirm or establish. What Jesus is really doing here is he's, he, he's, he's anticipating a question that somebody's going to bring up. And the question is basically, okay, now that the Messiah is here, now that you, you are fulfilling or obeying the law, is it still binding on us today? And Jesus' answer is yes. To demonstrate this a little bit more, let me give you a quote and then a couple of Bible passages. First, the quote, and this is from Charles Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon says, the law of God, he established and confirmed. Our king has not come to abrogate the law, but to confirm and reassert it. That's what Spurgeon says about this verse. Now, let me give you the two Bible passages. First, one from Paul. In the book of Romans, in chapter 6 and 7, Paul's explaining the function of the law in bringing us to realize our sin. The law could never save us, Paul is saying, but it does show us our need for a Savior. In fact, because of our sin nature, when we have this righteous standard put forward to us, we react against it. We actually respond to the law with more sin, Paul says. So does that make the law sinful? Paul says no. And in the middle of his explanation, he characterizes the law this way. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, Paul's saying that after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's talking about the role of the law in the life of a Christian. And he says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, why is it holy, righteous, and good? If I said, who or what is holy, righteous, and good, what would be the first thing that would come to your mind? God is. That's because the law, described this way, is a perfect reflection of who God is. The law is a description of God's character. It's a transcript for us of what God is like. And God's character doesn't change. And according to Jesus, neither does God's law. That makes sense, since it's a reflection of his character. Now, one more Bible passage. This is James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. And um, for the next couple of minutes, two or three minutes, plug in and work really hard to kind of dig in and understand this passage with me. All right? This takes a little bit of thought. You have to follow the reasoning here that James is giving. James is not a particularly complicated book, but we can make it complicated. All right, so here's what James writes. He says, Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, James approaches things very differently from the rest of the New Testament writers. And there's a reason for that. He's kind of combating a misunderstanding. Let me just walk through kind of the beginning of this passage. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And if you're like me, you kind of bristle at that a little bit and go, justified by works? No, everything else in the Bible teaches us that we're justified by faith and not by works. I mean, we're specifically told that by Paul over and over. You're, you're not justified by your works. So what does James mean? Well, James is using the word justified in a little bit of a different way than Paul does. James is not talking about being justified in the eyes of a court of law a forensic justification, the kind where there's a legal declaration of your standing before the court. That's how Paul's usually using it. And he's saying, in God's courtroom, you are justified, if you're a believer, by faith, not by works. You could never do enough good things to, to get God to say, 
you're righteous. James isn't using the word that way. James is using the word more casually, the way that we would use it in conversation, um, kind of like the word verify. He's saying that your works verify your faith. They justify your faith in that sense. Somebody claims to have faith, and then their works are opposite of what they're claiming. James says, well, that person isn't really a believer. If their life isn't characterized by, by works that verify, that justify their claim to have faith, then you have reason to doubt the claim. That's, that's the logic of what James is saying. Some people say, well, all you need to do is have faith in Christ. You know, you pray this prayer, you, you, you walk forward, you know, at this special service and, you know, whatever the, the case may be. But it doesn't matter how you live after that. Because once saved, always saved, you've got your golden ticket to heaven. And James is saying, no, 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 no. You're justified, your works, your actions justify your claim to faith. The works don't earn you salvation. But if the works aren't there, then the claim to have faith is questionable. That's James's logic. Okay? So, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So, in some sense, when Abraham was willing to offer Isaac on the altar, that action was a justification, a verification of Abraham's earlier claim to have faith. James says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So the faith made this claim and then the works come along and they put the kind of the stamp of approval on that claim to faith. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now, there's something I think that's really interesting to note here. I want to focus in on the word fulfilled. That's the word that we were talking about that Jesus uses. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, right? Here it says the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James is saying that when Abraham offered up Isaac, okay, that action, that was a fulfillment of the scripture that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what does this word fulfill mean? Well, it becomes a little bit clearer when we realize the scripture that James refers to that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's found in Genesis 15. But the story of Abraham offering Isaac is found in Genesis 22. So what we find in Genesis 15 is not a prophecy that's being fulfilled in Genesis 22. No, what's in Genesis 15 is a declaration. It's a statement about Abraham. Abraham had faith and God credited it to him as righteousness. That statement is made in Genesis 15. So in what sense is that statement about Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 being fulfilled 
in Genesis 22 when he offers Isaac? Well, it's being fulfilled in that it's being confirmed. It's being established. What had been said before about Abraham is now seen to be true, unchanged. The earlier statement is being fulfilled in that it's being reasserted, it's confirmed, it's established by what Abraham does. That's what Jesus means, okay, when he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's not changing them. He's confirming them. He's establishing them. And you might say, well, okay, but, I mean, part of the law was all that ceremonial stuff like going to the temple and making sacrifices and those kinds of things. So are we supposed to still be doing that? So let's talk about those ceremonial things for just a minute. Those ceremonial aspects of the law, we're told in the book of Hebrews, are patterned after a heavenly reality. So there's a heavenly reality that already existed. And then the tabernacle and the temple came along. And those things were types and shadows that pictured the reality, the heavenly reality. So Hebrews 8, 4 and 5 said, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, okay, when they're serving in the tabernacle and the temple, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So uh, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, God shows him the heavenly reality, and then he says, now you go make a copy of that. And that's what the tabernacle and the temple are. They're a copy of the heavenly reality. So the sacrifices in the tabernacle were shadows. They're pointing to a greater reality. And those sacrifices pointed to the need for the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died on earth, on the cross, but he offered himself his blood in the heavenly temple, in the heavenly tabernacle. That's where it really took place. That's where the reality is. Here's what Hebrews 9.23 says. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood, all that stuff. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What are the better sacrifices? It's the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is actually made, applied, given in the heavenly reality. Now remember, the copies are earthly ceremonial aspects of the law. Like the tabernacle, for example, was purified by things like the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood. But the heavenly reality, the original, was purified by the sacrifice of Jesus. That sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, was what the earthly tabernacle sacrifices were pointing to all along. So Hebrews 10, verse 1, explains, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The earthly sacrifices, the ceremonial aspects of the law, could never save because they were never intended to. They were only shadows and types pointing to Christ. There was a greater truth about Jesus. And these things in the tabernacle and the temple were the illustrations. And now here's the key thing. Those truths about Jesus that, that the sacrifices were telling us, pointing to, those truths don't change. They're eternal. They're still valid today. Now, the Old Covenant use or practice of those ceremonies is removed in the New Covenant because they were once and for all practiced fully, completely, and finally in the sacrifice of Christ. But the principle or the truth that they represent, that's being confirmed in Jesus' sacrifice, in what Jesus does. Think about it this way. If we were to practice those things today, if we were, we gathered this morning, you know, when we gather for church, we're, we're, we're singing, we're opening God's word, we're praying, we're not doing animal sacrifices. If we were to do that, we would be violating the very truths that those sacrifices represented. Because those sacrifices were pointing to the need for a perfect final sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. Now that that has come, if we were to go on doing the, the ceremonies, we would be undermining the reality, the truth of what Jesus accomplished. If we thought we still needed to offer a sacrifice for sin, we'd be missing the very thing that those sacrifices were pointing to. Jesus' sacrifice was the once for all, final, eternal sacrifice. So the eternal heavenly truth, which those ceremonies foreshadowed, remains. It's confirmed in what Jesus has done. When we obey Jesus, for example by sharing the Lord's Supper together, what are we doing? We're remembering his sacrifice. We are keeping this law. The same law that gave the ceremonies of sacrifice, we're keeping the same law because it's, it's pointing us to the same eternal truth of what Jesus did. Another way to say that is that by not following those ceremonial aspects of the law today. We are upholding the ceremonial law because we're honoring what it was saying all along. So Jesus affirms the law. Okay, that's the point in those verses. He didn't come to abolish or abrogate the law. Instead, he fulfills it. He fills it up to its full measure. He confirms it. He establishes it. Now, Here's the helpful thing that Jesus does. He gives us an example. Right away, after he tells us this principle, he gives us an example. Just like when the law was given in the Old Testament, here Jesus follows up what he's saying with some case law examples. And the case laws are just applications of the law to a particular circumstance. If the circumstances were different, the application might be different. But the law is unchanged. It's eternal. 
the application changes with the situation. So when we're given a case law example, it doesn't cover every eventuality, every possibility. Rather, it just teaches us how to apply the law. When you were in school and you learned the rules of multiplication, your teacher gave you demonstrations. She applied the laws of multiplication to particular numbers. And you saw the example, and then she gave you other numbers, and you applied the law to those numbers. And the result's a little bit different, but you're applying the law to a different situation, a new case. That's what the case laws are doing. They're giving us a demonstration of how to apply the law. If you took a class in electrical wiring, you know, you'd be given examples of, of how to do all of the wiring and all the principles of electricity and those kinds of things. But then when you go to wire your own house, you have to apply those laws to your particular situation. The law doesn't change. The application might look a little bit different. In legal settings, case law functions the same way. The case laws are giving particular applications of the law to specific circumstances, and it teaches us how to apply the law. And then you take it and you apply it to your own circumstance. Well, that's how these case laws function here in Matthew 5. So what should we expect when we look at a case law here? There are particular applications, so there may be times that there are exceptions in different circumstances, and the rest of the whole body of law would help us to understand that and determine it. So here's an example. Jesus says in chapter 5 of Matthew that we should let our good works be seen before men so that they will glorify God. And then he turns around in chapter 6 and warns against letting your good works be seen by men. Different circumstances, different application. That's not a contradiction in the law. It's an application to a different circumstance. And we're looking at one case law, not all of the possibilities. So let's just look at this one example, and we're just going to take the very first one that Jesus gives after he says what he says about the law. So the case law example here starts in verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're, on, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. All right, so first let's note how Jesus begins. You have heard that it was said. Then he follows it up with, but I say to you. Is Jesus contradicting the law? Is he giving a new law? No, what Jesus is doing is he's contradicting the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law. His contrast is with the persons, not with the law. You have heard, but I say to you. See, what Jesus says is opposed to what the Pharisees say. But what Jesus says confirms and establishes the law. So, 
like if you just look back at verse 20, look at the contrast he's giving. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He, he's saying what he's saying with that grid in mind, the scribes and Pharisees. Okay? So then we need to see what Jesus says in relation to the written law. So what is Jesus referring to when he gives this particular case? Well, he's referring to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The scribes and Pharisees took the sixth commandment and they applied it only to the specific physical act of killing someone. And even then they added a bunch of exceptions that were not justified by God's law. So they'd misrepresented God's law in two ways. First of all, they relaxed its specific application and they reduced the scope of what the law was actually talking about. So Jesus, when he comes along, in what he says, he's restoring the original intent of the law. He's proclaiming its full meaning. He's fulfilling it. Jesus says, not only should you not murder someone physically, but you should also not allow hatred in your heart. Murder, the act of murder, is the outworking of sinful hatred in the heart. So, Jesus says, the commandment, you shall not murder, rightly understood, includes a prohibition against hatred and against angry words that come out because of your hatred. It's not just the act of killing. It's the hatred and the outflow of that hatred. Jesus says that's what the law means. He doesn't say I'm giving you a new law, a different law. He says that's what the law means. And in verses 23 to 26 then, Jesus says that this negative law, don't do this, don't murder, also has a positive flip side as well. It means you should have a positive attitude towards your brother and you should seek reconciliation. Be reconciled to your brother. See, that's the flip side of the hatred in the heart that Jesus is dealing with. He's not adding to the law. He's not changing the law. He's restoring the full meaning of the law. That's what Jesus means when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And here's the main point. God's law is still valid and binding today. That's what Jesus is teaching us. God's law is still valid and binding today. Like Paul said, the law is holy and righteous and good. It reflects the character of God. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, one thing it means is obeying God's law. But more than that, as we will see when we study Psalm 119, it means that we come to love God's law, that we delight in it. The more we meditate on God's law and the more that we come to understand it, the more we will understand God. Because his law is a revelation of his character. So when we say that followers of Jesus should obey God's law, does that mean that obeying God's law is what saves us? No, not at all. So let me just talk for a few minutes as we wrap this up about the law and the gospel, the good news, okay? The law and the gospel. And there's three things I want you to realize here. The first one is this. Since the law is a reflection of the perfect character of God, the law naturally shows us where we fall short. When we violate God's law, 
were falling short of God's character, his glory. So Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the glory of God is his perfect character and the law demonstrates that to us, then when we break the law, we're falling short of God's glory. And all of us are lawbreakers. If you read the Ten Commandments, especially with Jesus' explanation of the full meaning of those laws, you will see that you are a lawbreaker. We have all broken God's law. And you can't say, well, I kept some of them. Or I kept most of them. Because James says, in James chapter 2, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, why would that be the case? Kids, if you have a, a 22 or a BB gun and you shoot it and you hit a window and part of the window cracks and falls out, can you say to your parents, well, there's a lot of the window that I didn't break. So it's no big deal. No, it's not how it works. The window is broken. And God's law is like that. The whole thing altogether is the perfect representation of his character. So if it's broken at any point, then it's broken. You're a lawbreaker. So the law shows us our sin. Secondly, when Jesus came to earth, he is the only man who ever lived and perfectly kept God's law. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never broke God's law. He kept it perfectly. That means, then, that Jesus didn't need to pay the penalty for sin, like all the rest of us deserve. See, we all deserve God's wrath. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What you've earned with your law-breaking is death, eternal separation from God. Jesus didn't earn that. Jesus didn't deserve that. So why did Jesus die? Because he was taking the penalty of the law for us. On our behalf. When Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, he was able to do that because he was the perfect law keeper. You know, when... when God's people brought sacrifices to the temple. Those sacrifices, like the lamb that they would bring, had to be inspected to make sure there was no blemish, no marks, no lameness, nothing wrong with it. Because it was supposed to be a perfect sacrifice. Well, Jesus is the lamb of God. He's unblemished. He's a lamb without spot. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin. And why is he perfect? Because he kept God's law perfectly. So now all those who have faith in Jesus, who trust him and his death in our place, we can have eternal life because he's taken our death penalty for us. So if that's the case, then what role does the law have in my life now? If I'm not under the penalty of the law, do I still need to obey the law? What role does it have in my life? And then this is the third thing. Remember what Jesus said. 
the law is still valid. The law is still in force. As Paul said, the law is holy and righteous and good. It shows us God's character. So the role that the law plays for us now is that it shows us how to live, how to follow Jesus. If Jesus was a law keeper and we want to follow Jesus, the law shows us how to live like him. James explains these functions of the law this way. This is James chapter 1, 22 to 25. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If you have dirt on your face, and you go and you stand in front of the mirror, and you see the dirt, now you realize your face is dirty. And if you don't do anything about it, and you just walk away and leave it there, the mirror didn't do you any good. And the mirror, by the way, was never intended to serve as the thing that cleaned your face, right? When you go to the mirror and you see you've got dirt on your face, do you lean up against the mirror and try to wipe that dirt off? That, that, that's ridiculous. That's not what a mirror is for. The mirror is to show you the problem. The law of God shows us our problem. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us. That's the point of the gospel. So our attitude toward the law should be the same as that of Jesus. We should love God's law. We should desire to obey God's law, not in order to earn salvation, because the law won't do that for us, but instead out of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. God has shown us grace, and that grace then becomes the motive for us to obey. So my hope as we study Psalm 119 together this year is that we together will learn to love God's law, that it will become our delight, that we'll be able to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Lord, as we dig in this year and we, and we study your law and our relationship to it, I pray that you would, by your spirit, show us where we fall short and that you would, by your grace and your mercy, act on our hearts and our minds to change us so that we do learn to love your law. We talk in this church about discovering together what it means to follow Jesus, and we've seen this morning that your law is the roadmap for following Jesus, not because your law earns us salvation. We could never keep it well enough to do that. Jesus has done that for us, but your law shows us how to live in response to the love and the grace that you've shown to us in Christ. Teach us to love your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.